Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which looks at the stories behind the food from our favourite A-list of food writers. I'm Julie Smith and I'm linking the thinking about what we eat and who we are to create a deeper connection with food. This week I'm in the Syria of Anas Atassi's childhood, which inspired his book Sumag. Uh, during those uh, days, uh, especially during the summers, that we would uh, sit outside uh, on a really big table, uh, 20 to 30 people usually on the table, all my uh, aunties and uncles and uh, their children um, gathered together sharing uh, specialty dishes for the weekend. He and his family left the country before the war began in 2011, which has left more than 380,000 people dead and devastated its ancient cities. But as Syrian refugees spread across the world, its food has become its identity. And like so much food from the old country, it doesn't quite sound the same when it lands in its new homes. I say sumac, they say suma. I asked Anas if that was an issue. Yeah, you're right, actually. So... uh and uh, sometimes they don't translate also maybe very well. And, uh, but uh, indeed, I think uh, uh, I actually never thought about it, that, uh, that putting an Arabic word on uh, the tit- as a title of the book, it's actually, I think it's also something which is quite strong to m- make sure that those type of uh, words or uh, anecdotes are o- always well presented uh, to, to the West, I think. Well, it's interesting because there are issues there of cultural appropriation and of authenticity. You know, I did a wonderful interview recently with Dukani Ayubi uh, about her fabulous book, Parwana, where it's about fleeing the home country. And she said that it was so important that the recipes are absolutely authentic, that they are kept to a T because it is holding on to the food from the old country. So when you're even pronouncing the title of your book wrong, you know, where do we go from there? There's so many issues wrapped up in that, isn't there? So let's be really clear. It's summa, the emphasis on the second syllable, and you're not pronouncing the C. So no more are we going to talk about summa. <laughs> Indeed, like, you know, even I haven't realized it anymore that I started calling it like sumac. Uh, and like, this is not how we say it. It is indeed sumac. <laughs> yeah. And how does it feel when you let go of all your your heritage? Because, you know, when you're talking about food from the old country, when you leave your home and you take your food and your soul with you to another place and then you write a book about it and, you know, like a child, you let it go out into the world. Exactly. How does it feel to let go of that control over it? To be honest, like uh, some things, uh, I let go of it unconsciously. Like unconsciously, I don't pronounce summa right. But I think, uh, and that's like the troubling part. That's what I find is like really uh, uh, confronting. Uh, but indeed, I do, uh, I'm usually really conscious uh, when uh like things, food traditions, uh, the way of cooking, uh, uh, like this, uh, the uh, the uh, traditional celebrations and so on. To and that is me consciously really trying as hard as possible to hold into those and uh, to cherish them as much as I can. And and it is an effort to be honest. I, I bet because there are so many people uh, who you're wanting to please. Uh, you know, you want. To- people to have that experience that you had you want them to love it but maybe you might 
make something not quite so this or put a little bit of extra that. I mean, that's what happened to Indian food in in Britain. You know, it was completely transformed, supposedly for our tastes, but it lost the whole essence. And and it's only now that it's it's really coming back. So hold on to it. (laughs) That term holding on and cherishing, those are really two very important concepts about food from the old country. And your story is the same as so many people who I talk to when they leave their country to go to university. They've never really thought about the food before. And it's only when they are away that there becomes this ache in their soul. (laughs) They ring their mum or their grandma and they start to cook the food from home and suddenly they realise what they're missing. And who they're missing. And it's much bigger than the food on the table, isn't it? Absolutely. This is like, like you explained it exactly how it happened to me and I think to many other people. Like when I was uh, at my uh, family house, uh, my mom would cook almost every day a Syrian dish for breakfast, lunch and dinner and things that you really take for granted. And, uh, and when I left to my university in Beirut, Beirut is still like uh, the uh, gastronomic city of uh, uh, one of the gastronomic city of the Arab uh, world. Uh, but uh, you can get amazing uh, hummus, uh, mezzas in general, uh, kebab and so on. But there are those type of dishes that are uh, like the comfy food that are home-cooked meals that you don't just simply get in any restaurant uh, uh, easily and uh, this is uh, the time of realization of this uh, numerous fights and agonies that I had with my mom that oh don't cook this I want shawarma or I want falafel and now like I miss those comfy foods so much and that's when I was like okay our Skype and uh, WhatsApp uh, tutorial with my mom started at that time uh, me trying to learn her uh, her like kind of uh, way of uh, cooking those uh, comfy home cooked uh, meals and at that time Anas did you um, think I want to write this into a book or you know what was the purpose of communicating it out because presumably at that point you were a young man who just missed home and he missed his mum uh, you know exactly. how did that what was where was the leap into actually this is this is pretty amazing I think other people might be feeling this thing and really appreciate my mum's cooking to be honest, uh, that uh, I haven't really uh, uh, thought about it uh, at that time when I was uh, actually, uh, uh, I was quite young indeed, and uh, uh, that was already more than 10 years ago almost. And uh, and indeed, like when I kind of uh, uh, took the recipes from mom, I recorded many of those. But then uh, really when the war started uh, and it became a bit more serious and uh, I I became even more detached from uh, my uh, physically from my country but also from the people of the of uh, of my country like my uh, my uh, extended family and so on but uh, and this is the time when I thought like I have those amazing recipes there are so many beautiful stories around those dishes it's not only about the dishes and I really wanted to make sure that I preserve uh, those memories, those are really personal memories for my, uh, of, uh, of me and my family. And, uh, and those, you know, although they are really personal, those can really be uh, related uh, to many other people uh, in uh, uh, Syria. And so many Syrians can really relate to those stories. That's what's really like, I need to do this for myself, but also 
to kind of uh, cherish the, those memories and for other people within Syrians to relate to it and to, to, for the world to hear about our lives before the war. Absolutely. It's so important. You're talking about destruction of a culture, of heritage, of everything that you knew and everyone before you knew. It is huge. And food is a wonderful way of bringing those memories and holding them close and keeping your culture as intact as it possibly can be despite the bombs. And, you know, we've heard this from Olya Hercules in Ukraine as well when she first wrote Mamushka. That was what she was trying to do, to try and hold it together to stop the enemy getting to the very heart of who her people are. Um I did an interesting series in 2015. The only thing I th could think of doing as, as, you know, we saw this mass outpouring of people from, from Syria. I did a, a series called Jaibli Salam. And you'll, you'll remember this as a, yeah. as a song by Fairuz. I went yeah. into this, the families of Brighton Syrian community as they were settling and, and talked to them about food from the old country as well as their favorite songs from the past. And it was, Yeah. hugely hugely emotional to, to eat and, and cook with these people but actually to hear where they came from and and i could see how important food is to them Absolutely. you've you've chosen food moments from your childhood let's go into assyria before it was destroyed let's go to the full maduma like if there is one place you tell me from those moments that i would love to go back to it's the breakfast table at my uh, grandmother's uh, backyard garden And uh, this was uh, uh, usually it happens indeed in the weekend. And uh, um, and it is like a religious activity for all Syrians. If you ask any Syrian, they would tell you on Friday, we go to our grandmother for breakfast on weekends. And um, and that was like a, also like kind of a, a very uh, automated move that us, me, my family and I would just dress up without talking go to the car, go to my grandmother. <laughs> and um, uh, during those uh, days, uh, especially during the summers, that we would uh, sit outside uh, on a really big table, uh, 20 to 30 people usually on the table, all my uh, aunties and uncles and uh, their children um, gathered together sharing uh, uh, basic uh, breakfast dishes like za'atar and zayt, uh, white cheese, um, labne, uh, but also like, of course, the uh, breakfast uh, specialty dishes for the weekend, like uh, musabbaha, which is like a variety of, uh, it's the same ingredients as hummus, but it is uh, prepared uh, uh, in a different way and it's served warm that has a completely different feeling to it. Uh, um, uh, Although it's like really similar ingredients to hummus, but also we uh, we have like a full mdamas, which is also a uh, uh, one of the uh, essential dishes for uh, for the weekend, as to kind of uh, celebrating the beginning of the weekend. And it's a dish that we see on most Middle Eastern uh, menus in in this country. One of my absolute favorites. For those who haven't had it, take us through this beans dish. Yeah, it is so simple. And what I love about it, it it's simplicity. It's uh, uh, it kind of uh, really respects the flavors of the of the minimum type of uh, uh, ingredients that go into it. It is indeed like made of uh, fava beans. 
and uh, basically you need to heat the fava beans and then after it's heated with its uh, water you use it uh, you put you plate it on a plate and you put uh, of course some cumin with it some uh, salt and pepper and then i think the essence is the uh, topping which is uh, a lot of really good olive oil and uh, uh, some uh, parsley and uh, tomato and also you sprinkle a little bit more of salt on top and with that's simple. Yeah. And when you make it, because you live now in Amsterdam, where do you get your olive oil from? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I've been really experimenting a lot with olive oils uh, lately. Uh, so, uh, and I get, uh, and actually many people know that uh, I, I, I have like four bottles of different olive oils in my cabinet. Um, and uh, people also, when when they visit me, they sometimes bring me olive oil, which I absolutely love this uh, kind of uh, uh, habit of uh, bringing uh, olive oil or other kind of uh, ingredients uh, to somebody's house. And uh, re- now I buy a really good uh, Spanish olive oil. So it's a really nice uh, extra version olive oil that uh, has very similar type of really uh, acidic and strong taste to, to the Syrian olive oil. Let me suggest Odyssey's uh, Cretan olive oil. Cretan. Cretan. It it has the same kind of feel that I remember having in the Middle East. Um, I haven't been to Syria, uh, but it's that little cough factor at the back of your throat. You know that really. Exactly. This is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Try that one. It's 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 really amazing. Um, I'm going to note it down. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Toshka is your second food moment. Again, running around with all your cousins. It's about your childhood. Why of all the wonderful moments in the book did you choose Toshka? Yeah, well, Toshka is uh, really a uh, a very uh, kind of street food type of dish. And uh, when I was, uh, uh, especially during the summer, going outside with uh, my cousins uh, on the streets of Homs, where I uh, where I'm originally from, like uh, usually when uh, my family and my cousins' uh, parents would uh, the older generation would be more kind of invited to a uh, celebration which is adult only and no children allowed. So me and my cousins we would gather each uh, ourselves. Uh, room around the streets of uh, of Homs and uh, go from one kiosk to one restaurant to, to the next and uh, and one of our favorite is definitely Toshka. I don't remember any time when I was let alone on the street. I didn't go to this Toshka place with my cousin. <laughs> Basically, Toshka it's like a panini, so it is a flat bread. You open it and you put inside it uh, a heavily spiced uh, uh, meat. And then on top of that, you would put uh, some cheese and uh, you would uh, put it in a like a panini uh, kind of seb and you would grill it on both sides and then you eat it, uh, dipping it with uh, garlic and some, uh, uh, and some uh, um, what do you say, this uh, uh, pickles on the side. Although you, while you were running around with your your, your cousins and, and having a great time, you also were, thought that that meat might be the feral cats that were also <laughs> running around with you. <laughs> Presume yeah, it wasn't. 
Yeah, funny how children uh, minds uh, go around but indeed we uh, we would there were some feral quite some feral cats like uh, roaming around uh, the restaurant and of course the customers and us would sit uh, on the side streets on like plastic chairs and uh, and uh, around uh, around the restaurant uh, and uh, and we thought it is a it must be so good that it must, it could be a cat's uh, meat <laughs> <laughs> but you know the way you talk about that you the way that you write about that memory it feels like there was such a wonderful freedom it was a wonderful place i mean my chats with those brighton syrian families they just painted a picture of a syria that was just perfect you had the perfect weather it was really cold and snowy in the winter and really really hot in the summer you have the seaside you have wonderful countryside and i mean how does it feel when you go back into your memories and you see or or you watch the news and you see children running around now you know in 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 danger all the time it must be absolutely heartbreaking yeah, absolutely like uh, like really serious to what you said at the beginning is uh, has such a it's, it's not a big country but it has such a variety of uh, of seasons but also uh, uh, views and it has mountains has uh, also the sea the mediterranean sea and uh, like living uh, when uh, when we were at Homs, we if you want to go eat fish, we don't eat fish at Homs. We just take the car, one hour drive to uh, the seaside, and then we're eating uh, fish uh, right out of the sea. Like uh, those memories really makes me so happy when I just remember those simple uh, occasions that uh, we never thought about them uh, uh, earlier that uh, that they might be gone or we might not be repeated uh, anymore. And that's really saddening, and especially seeing currently the situation, how it's evolving, and uh, the crisis, the, the poverty that also came after the crisis. Well, not after, we're still in a crisis. And um, uh, yeah, it's really heartbreaking. And the exodus across the world of families. I mean, you, exactly. you write about all your family piling into this one-bedroom house on the on the beach that your grandfather <laughs> owned. And and now though, that, that family lives literally all over the world. I mean, it's, exactly. you're, I mean, you are the lucky ones. You were able to find homes. There are plenty of people who, who were not able to. And I went to the jungle in Calais and bumped into many people who, you know, just were not able to, to find home. Are you able to see your family? Yeah, so uh, indeed, like, uh, to, uh, like I feel very fortunate and very lucky, really, uh, and privileged to to be a, to to be in the position that I am in, where many other people who have been really still suffering inside Syria or also outside of Syria in refugee camps or in uh, uh, in between borders, trying to still find uh, their way around the world after 10 years of, uh, of uh, the war. So, uh, like, uh, although my family is all around the world, like I have my sister in London, I have uh, my mom and uh, my other sister in Germany. So uh, we're relatively close to each other we, and we try as much as possible to see each other, well, uh, let alone this corona situation. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but yes, definitely, I, I feel very lucky where I am and uh, the situation we are in is definitely uh, difficult and especially to my mom where she would uh, imagine after her living and working many years outside of Syria that she would come back to and retire in Syria in her house that she has and my dad built 
in order to uh, have the retirement there. And now she's in Germany, a place where she never thought that she would be in because of the situation. And um, yeah, but uh, so it is, uh, I think it's really uh, difficult for older generation than uh, for younger generation. Uh, they can find their way around the world, but older generation is, had always the, uh, the on their back of their head uh, that they want a lot of expats working outside of Syria that they would come back to Syria and retire in Syria. Yeah. And presumably Ramadan is a particularly hard time for your mum. Uh, it's a family event. Uh, it's all about the food, the the feasting after the fast. Um, tell us about Shobat Adas. Is that how you pronounce it? Shorbat Adas, yeah. Shorbat Adas, your third food moment. It is basically the uh, like a lentil soup. Uh, actually, a couple of days ago, I uh, found a picture of my mom's Ramadan table on uh, on my phone, and I posted it on Instagram. And uh, it's such a beautiful picture that uh, I took it without even thinking. And now looking at this picture, it really takes me back to this amazing, beautifully laid. Uh, table uh, with uh, with Syrian food and very typical type of food that are uh, typical for Ramadan and uh, shorbet adas indeed is like uh, I don't remember drinking or uh, eating shorbet adas uh, uh, outside of uh, uh, Ramadan like uh, I would really remember that this is uh, spe- specific at least in my family for Ramadan and it's every day of Ramadan 30 days <laughs> We would uh, every every day uh, when we break our fast, we break it with shorbet adas, and uh, it is made. Uh, uh, it could be made with variety of uh, lentil uh, type, like uh, green or red uh, or brown. Uh, traditionally, it's done by brown, but my mom sometimes does it brown or uh, the orange. In the book, I had it with orange. Uh, but uh, to be honest, uh, now thinking about it, I actually preferred uh, the darker one when I uh, when I uh, was younger. But uh, uh, the the orange is more uh, common, let's say, around uh, the world. It's uh, but it's also common in Syria to have it in uh, the orange lentil, um, and it's uh, really simple. So there's nothing, not a lot to it. It's uh, some uh, caramelized uh, onions with uh, some cumin and. Uh, uh, um, and uh, some uh, black, uh, black pepper, salt, and curcuma, and then with the lentil you cook it in uh, a bouillon, like a vegetable bouillon or chicken bouillon, and then you mix it all together and uh, blend it all together so it becomes smooth. And then of course you top it uh, ideally with uh, some citrus, uh, lemon, and uh, sumac. I love also sumac addition to it. Yeah. And of course, you learnt all this in the kitchen with your mother when you were a little boy, when you were not really allowed to stay in the kitchen. You were always being shooed out, but you'd sneak back in and just imbibe all these cooking skills. You call them nafas, is it? Nafas. Nafas, yeah. which is, um, is it, does it equate to, I don't know if you know the, the English word naus, which is a kind of a, an instinct, a natural knowledge, something that you kind of just drink up. It's, it, I know it actually means breath. But is that what it means? But that's exactly what it means in the uh, meaning or in the context of uh, of uh, the food or the people or the person who's cooking the food. It's this in exact what you said, instinct and passion of uh, 
really understanding ingredients and being able to uh, combine those ingredients in harmony and creating magic out of those. And this is a word that we would use a lot to give compliments to uh, a really good cook. So my mom, when she comes back from somebody's uh, house uh, from dinner and she would say, oh, uh, this lady of the house has definitely a great nafas, meaning that her food was really good. <laughs> <laughs> in in fact, you know, when we're talking about it meaning breath and the etymology of inspiration is is inspira, which means I breathe in. Exactly. You know, yeah. so it's actually inspiration is about breath. It's breathing it all in. I love that idea of this little boy hiding under the, the kitchen table, breathing in his mother's <laughs> cooking skills. <laughs> Take us to your fourth food moment. Oh, yeah, shaviat. Uh, basically a filo dough uh, stuffed in... Uh, uh, in ashta and ashta is basically a ricotta type uh, cheese and uh, then uh, uh, you would put it in the oven but we do it usually in syria in communal ovens uh, because it's so big uh, that sometimes the diameter of the dish is like uh, half a meter or one meter so you need to like uh, take it to a communal oven um, and it's so funny, like those uh, kind of uh, anecdotes, if I remember uh, my mom or my uh, dad calling the uh, sweet shop and they would say, oh, we would like shabiat uh, uh, 70 centimeter. Like they don't say like the way they order it, they would order it in, in measurement. And uh, <laughs> and sometimes my mom would also do her own version. And, uh, and the version that I have in the book is also my mom likes to play a little bit uh, and creates a little bit of uh, different versions and uh, into it. And uh, the one is uh, with some raspberry filling, which, which is absolutely delicious, gives this nice acidic uh, and uh, a bit of uh, light sweetness from the raspberries. So... Um, uh, Interesting that you mentioned the communal oven. Um, you know, you just mentioned it in passing, yet this is the absolute centre of so many people's cultures, uh, village culture. I mean, I hear it from Irini Georgioglu in, in Crete. Uh, um, the it, Italians, uh, village life was all about the communal oven. Uh, you know, all across the Middle East, this is where people would go and chat and pass the time. Yeah. It was the the essence of village life, wasn't it? I mean, is it? It's completely, completely obliterated now, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, to be honest, it's not only villages; even cities in Syria really? that they would have still communal ovens in order to cook those big one meter plates. <laughs> uh, and uh, and like uh, what the uh, how usually it is uh, that uh, for. For example, my grandmother, or uh, would uh, I would vividly remember her clearly. So remember her like doing a mix of uh, meat and uh, and vegetables uh, in order to use it uh, and send it to the communal oven. So they put it on a on a on a dough, so she can create sfiha, which is like a as we call it in the West, the Turkish pizza. But it's absolutely not a pizza, but it's like a, a, a dough with uh, topped with. Um, uh, with uh, meat, uh, uh, minced meat on top, and uh, a lot of kind of dishes that uh, we would whenever we are uh, uh, we are in having a big celebrations, 
the family houses would uh, would definitely send uh, those dishes to the communal ovens. But also sometimes, uh, uh, like day-to-day cooking, a lot of people use it also. Sometimes they don't have an oven in their house and uh, and uh, they would use it for day-to-day. And such a convenient uh, and brilliant idea that uh, unfortunately it is uh, fading away. It's very important to not let it fade away to keep the authenticity to keep the identity of these different cultures alive and you know you've called the book sumak is that the taste for you of syria for me this is uh, the taste and texture and the smell of syria and especially why is that because uh, the uh, like the uh, summa by itself is uh, it's like really distinct to to the region and to Syria and uh, you would uh, for example have uh, black pepper or allspice or uh, uh, cardamom and so many other spices that are so m- common to other cuisines and of course to Syrian cuisine but sumak is really uh, special and, and distinct to the region and also, of course, to Iran and uh, Turkey, but uh, also heavily used in the Levant area and also Syria. It's like when you said at the beginning of the talk, it's uh, like you want to find those moments that you cherish those moments uh, or those uh, uh, traditions or even like for me, ingredients. Like when I have sumak in my cupboard, it's like that's like makes home more home (laughs) and for me sumak feels really home thanks for listening you can buy suma by anasa tassi and all the books featured on cooking the books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com and while you're there do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news don't forget to rate and review the podcast on apple podcasts and i'll see you next week when i'm talking how to save the planet with anna jones (laughs) 